Welcome to Redemption Gilbert. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. I'm so excited you're here with us on this amazing Super Bowl Sunday. We got any Chiefs fans in the house? Couple. We got any Eagles fans in the house? All right. Well, by that show of hands, I guess the Chiefs have it. Uh, whether you're a Chiefs fan or or an Eagles fan, I almost choked on the Eagles fan part. Uh, you're welcome here at the church. One of the things when you preach on Super Bowl Sunday, uh, there's an expectation that you're going to make some jokes about the Super Bowl. And so I was really thinking like, well, who am I going to say that I'm rooting for? Because I'm very used to not having my team playing in the Super Bowl. So that part feels natural to me. And here's what I've decided. Um, go Suns. That's what I've decided. <laughs> Let's go Suns. I don't really care who wins today, but it'll be a good game. I'm sure Matt or Kendrick, this is for you. So uh, we're going to continue in our Servant King series today. We just started last week. This is a sermon series that's going to go through a significant chunk of the back part of the book of Isaiah, uh, written by the prophet Isaiah. And just to give us a little bit of a run-up, because today we're going to have a pretty big chunk of scripture that we're going to be going through, two chapters, and I'm going to try to get us through the context of what this looks like. I want to remind us of where we are in the story so that what Isaiah is addressing to the people make some sense. So just to back up, what we have is Israel is in the land, and then Babylon, a major foreign force, comes up uh, next to Israel, and they defeat the Israelites and take them off into exile. And the first part uh, of the book of Isaiah really deals with that issue. And then Persia, the next empire up, raises in power and they defeat Babylon. And then that king allows Israel to return home. And the section of Isaiah that we're dealing with today is really in that section of Israel's history where they've returned home from exile after being freed by this foreign king from the, from the nation of Persia. And they are back home is, uh, Isaiah, one of the longest books in your Bible in the Old Testament, he's the first of the major prophets, is really cleanly divided into two halves if you look at the book. The first half is chapters 1 through 39, which is all the lead up to kind of where we've started our series. Uh, that book is written prior to, Bab that part of the book is written prior to Babylon taking over Israel, and it is written uh, by Isaiah to the people as a warning. If you continue to disobey God, if you continue to rebel, if you continue to chase after foreign idols, you will be chastised, you will be defeated by enemies that God is going to send your way. And that comes to pass when Babylon takes them into exile. The second half of the book, the part that we are taking, undertaking, is really the so what. This is the post-exile. They've returned home from exile, back to the land, and now how do they deal with this reality? Uh, there's some debate among scholars. Some scholars, and probably the most traditional view, is that Isaiah wrote the entire thing in this pre-exile period, uh, and that the parts that we're going to be dealing with over these next few weeks are really uh, long-term prophecies that Isaiah was making. Uh, other scholars believe that the book actually cleanly divides right here because Isaiah wrote the first part and then handed that part off to his disciples who continued studying in his way, and that they're actually writing in the current day post-exile. Uh, part of the clues that they point to that say that is that Isaiah talks about himself personally, uses the I pronoun in the first part, but never in the second part. The second part also talks about what seems to be things that are happening right now 
Either way, whether you say Isaiah wrote the whole thing or it was split up over a couple times it compiled together, doesn't change the point of what's trying to happen today. What we have is Israel, who has been God's chosen people, defeated, taken to exile, returned home, and now as they're back home in the land, they are complaining. One of the best sitcoms that uh, ever aired in American TV is Seinfeld. Uh, and if you're my age or older, you laugh and go, yeah. And if you're younger, you go, I've never watched that. Uh, one of the best episodes is when one of the main characters, George Costanza's dad, Frank, uh, talks about a make-believe holiday that he's created called Festivus. He says he's tired of everybody celebrating Christmas and Hanukkah. What about a Festivus for the rest of us? Uh, and it has some very interesting uh, traditions, but one of them, and probably my favorite one, is the airing of the grievances, where, George, where Frank gathers everyone for dinner, and he stands up, and he says, I got a lot of problems with you people, and now you're going to hear about it. Uh, and today, as we head into is, uh, Isaiah, in chapters 41 and 42, we really are coming at the tail end of the airing of the grievances. But the ironic part of the airing of the grievances is you would expect that God could easily stand up at a metaphorical family dinner and say, I got a lot of problems with you people, and now you're going to hear about it. But instead, Israel is the one standing up and pointing their finger at God and saying, I got a lot of problems with you, and you're going to hear about it. Now, you would expect that if God was anything like me, he'd get real defensive at this point, he'd probably get very angry. But instead, what happens in particularly in chapter 41 is we get God submitting himself to essentially the court of public opinion. And the king takes the stand. In fact, the way the text opens up gives us a picture of that. This is what it says. You have complaints? Then be silent before me, you islands, the foreign nations. Let the nations renew their strength. Everybody get ready. Get prepared. Let them come forward and speak. Let's meet together at the place of judgment. Let's go to court. You got some beef? You got complaints? You got grievances? You want to give me a hard time? Fine. Let's go to court. I came across this great quote this week that says, you don't win a debate by suppressing discussion. You win it with a better argument. And what we're going to see here in chapter 41 is God laying out his argument. Feel free, bring your complaints. I'll take them. Here's what he says. Who has steered up the one from the east, calling him in righteousness to his service? He hands nations over to him and subdues kings before him. He turns them to dust with his sword, to windblown chaff with his bow. Now for us, we go, what in the heck is he talking about? This is the beginning of his argument. Who stirred up the one from the east? He hands nations over to him. There's a lot of he's and him's and who's this person he's talking about. If you lived in Israel at this time, it would have been very clear what God is talking about right here. He's referring to Cyrus the Great. Cyrus the Great uh, lived in the, let it be the 6th century BCE. Uh, Cyrus was the one that, over, that ran the Persian Empire that overthrew Babylon and had come to free the Israelites from their captivity. In fact, what had become a very popular thought in Israel during this time is that the Messiah that had been long promised by God was actually Cyrus. And that Cyrus was the king, the great king they'd been waiting for that was going to release them. And because he had come and the Messiah had showed up and all these promises that had been given along with the Messiah's reign were not coming true for Israel, they were complaining about God, saying that he was holding out on them, he had forgotten about them. 
If you want a map for a little context, uh, here's Jerusalem over here along the sea in, Ju in Judah. Uh, this entire red area was the Babylonian Empire, and as you can see, it was fairly large. They took everyone out of Jerusalem and take, took them back to the capital cities, and then eventually the Persian Empire rose to power out of the east and came and overthrew the Babylonians. And part of that was returning Israel back. If you'd been here for, if you were here for the Nehemiah series that we went through, uh, you, you read about the difficulties that they had in trying to reestablish Jerusalem as a city and, and building the temple there in this place. Cyrus is the one from the east. And what God says is, who's the one that called Cyrus over here? Who's the one that used him in power and righteousness to do what he's accomplished? Who's done this? Who's carried it through, calling forth the generations from the beginning? It's me, the Lord. With the first of them and with the last, I'm he. He is him. He's the one. You think Cyrus is the Messiah? You think Cyrus is your savior? I'm the one who's been here from the beginning of time. I've called every generation, and he's just another king in another line of kings that I rule. The islands have seen it and they fear. The ends of the earth tremble. They approach and they come forward. They help each other and they say to their companions, be strong. When I read this part of the text, I immediately thought about the movie Saving Private Ryan. At the beginning of that movie, it illustrates for us what it looked like for soldiers in World War II approaching Normandy in the beaches. They were in boats, huddled together, terrified, throwing up with seasickness because they knew what was going to happen when they landed on those beaches. The machine gun nests were going to open up and most likely they were going to die right there in that place. And so in their terror and in their trembling and in their fear, they huddled together and they told each other, be strong. It's going to be okay. We're going to make it. Even though they knew deep down it probably wasn't going to work out so well for them. For the first, I have, I have two sons, Asher, who's 15, Beck, who next month will be turning 11. Uh, and when Beck was little, for the first probably two years of his life, every Friday, him and I would have the day together. Uh, and even at 10 years old now, he still brings up our days that we got to spend together as a little kid. And one of his favorite things that he liked to do uh, when we would hang out together was to play hide-and-seek. Um, now, he was probably two, three years old right in that neighborhood when we were playing hide-and-seek together. Um, and so I would always make him hide because I was too big to really hide anywhere. Uh, and he really liked to go hide and have me close my eyes and count. And I, and I have a specific memory from our hide-and-seek days, which I absolutely love. And I took a picture of it uh, because I knew someday I would show it to you. So here you go. Beck's probably two and a half years old, and uh, I'm, I'm in the, he would make me go in his bedroom and close the door, and I would have to count really loud, and then when I would finish, I'd come out, and i walk out to the living room, and this is what I see. <laughs> and so I had to snap a picture, because it's so great. He thinks I can't see him. He thinks that because he's hiding behind this pillow, somehow he's absolutely hidden from my knowledge and my sight. And we laugh because it's so silly and so cute. Isaiah continues on. He says, The metal worker encourages the goldsmith, and the one who smooths with the hammer spurs on the one who strikes the anvil. One says of the welding, it's good, and the other one nails down the idol so it will not topple. 
Isaiah is describing the nations who understand how powerful God is and the rule that he has over the entire world. And he describes how they're in terror over it. And yet they encourage each other, don't worry, we're going to be okay. And then he says they bring their craftsmen in and their craftsmen begin to make things. The metal worker makes the shape of the idol and the goldsmith overlays it with gold and one smooths it nicely with the hammer and the other one strikes it with the anvil and they say to each other, yes, this is a good one. This is a good idol. And then they bring in the last person who sets it on its pedestal and nails down its feet so it won't topple over. It immediately thinks of my two-and-a-half-year-old son hiding behind that pillow. As if somehow that was going to hide him. It reminds me of Adam and Eve in the garden who rebelled against God, and he shows up and he says, where are you? And they're hiding behind a pillow with their legs sticking out. Who, who are these idols that they're watching after? In, in this case in particular, in the ancient Near East, there was many nations that were worshiping many gods. But because we're talking about Cyrus and because we're talking about the Persians, most likely Isaiah is actually referring to a specific idol that they're building. It would have been one like this. This is the god Ahura Mazda which would have been the, one of the Persian gods. Early in Persia's uh, empire's reign, they would have been a wildly pantheistic community, meaning they had many, many gods that they worshipped. But over time, as their uh, nation matured, they actually started moving more and more towards more of a monotheistic outlook, having one god. And the way they did it is they promoted one of their gods, this guy, he was originally known as the Lord of Wisdom. Eventually, he became the God of Gods for Persia. In fact, when King Cyrus would go into battle to conquer his neighbors, it was tradition that you would have a white chariot led by white horses with no one in it because it was the place that Ahura Mazda would ride along, metaphorically speaking, to bring wisdom and victory to the troops. And Isaiah absolutely sees the ridiculousness of this practice. Israel is standing up at the table, pointing at God, saying, I've got problems with you. I've got some beef with you. Let me tell you about these legitimate nations and how powerful they are and how real their gods are. And he says, yeah, I, I know about them. They hear about me and they're terrified. And as they sit in their workshop and they build these ridiculous things, they tell each other how good their work is before they nail it down so it doesn't fall over. I know about their gods. I know about their kings. I know about their hope. You're not telling me anything I haven't heard before. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its furthest corners, I called you. I said, you are my servant. I've chosen you and have not rejected you. You have forgotten who you are. You've forgotten how you even know about me. You've forgotten where you were called from. You've forgotten why you were called. And you have been mistaken. I have not forgotten you. I have not rejected you. And because that is true, then do not fear. For I'm with you. Don't be dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God is willing to stand in the defense box and take the questions 
And he defends himself righteously. And then he reminds Israel who you really are. You're not significant because you're a powerful nation. You're not significant because your king is great. You're not significant because you build powerful idols. You're significant because I picked you. That's why. You have a mission not because you're wonderful. You have a mission because I gave you one. And I will make sure to protect you, to uphold you, because I'm your God, and I didn't forget. And then God begins the cross-examination. He turns to the nations, to their idols, the ones that they have put their faith in, and he says this, present your case, says the Lord. Set forth your arguments, says Jacob's king. Tell us, you idols, what's going to happen? Tell us of what the former things were so that we may consider them and know their final outcome. I'm going to give you all the room you need here, idols. I'm going to get out of the way. I'm going to give you a platform right here. Get to work. Tell us what's going to happen in the future. Tell us about what happened in the past and how you played a part in it so we can consider it together and see how that worked out for you. Or declare to us the things that are to come and tell us what the future holds so that we can know that you're God's. Do something whether good or bad, so that we can be dismayed and filled with fear. I don't know at what point Isaiah's writing turns to sarcasm, but it's clearly here now. Do something, anything, good, bad, so that we can be terrified by your power. Just show us real quick. I love this tradition of the prophets. The prophets, including, I would argue, Jesus at times, loves to point out the hypocrisy with sarcasm. There's a great story from 1 Kings in which the prophet Elijah comes to con in conflict with the prophets of Baal, who was the pre predominant god of the nations surrounding them, and he invites them to uh, what I like to think of as like an uh, ancient rap battle. They're going to show up and show who's really for real at this thing. And he says, okay, you guys start. You'll build, a temp you'll build uh, an altar, and then you'll ask Baal to show up and do something impressive, okay? So go. And this is what the text says in Kings 8, 1 Kings 18. They called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us for six hours. They're out there doing this. But there's no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made, and at noon, with amazing patience, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry louder, for he's a god. Maybe he's either musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and you have to wake him up. I love this. Maybe you just need to scream louder, because your god, certainly your god has to hear you, but maybe he's busy. Maybe he's going to the bathroom. Maybe he's on vacation. Did you ever consider, did anybody check his calendar before we agreed to this battle? No, he didn't. And if you want to continue in the story, look up 1 Kings 18 and wait till you see what God does when he shows up. But that's not our focus for today. This is what God says. I look and there's no one. No one among the gods to give counsel. No one to give answer when I ask them. See, they're all false. Their deeds amount to nothing. Their images are but wind and confusion. In two chapters of Isaiah, I dare say that my favorite phrase in the entirety of the thing is right here. Their images are but wind and confusion. 
The irony of the wind and confusion is that the whole point of building an idol is that you are trying to take something ethereal, something you can't get your hands on, something you can't understand, and domesticate it. You want to make it real. You want to make it concrete. You want to make it so that you can see it with your hands. You can touch it. And what the reality is, these idols are nothing. They're images. This thing that you designed to be concrete and available to you is nothing but wind and confusion. Where is the wind? Where does it come from? What is it made of? You brought these idols to power in your life because you wanted clarity and control and they give you nothing but confusion because you don't know what I'm up to. When you try to attribute to them the power that belongs to me, you will end up confused and chasing the wind. I love that phrase. The idols of the world offer us nothing but wind and confusion. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, nothing teaches us about the preciousness of the creator as much as when we learn the emptiness of everything else. God is not afraid of the courtroom. He is not afraid of the debate. He is not afraid of being held to account because he's for real. And he knows the score when it comes to the idols that everyone across all time and all history has chased. They are nothing. They are nothing but wind and confusion. And yet, those are the things that we chase with our lives. It's easy for us to say, well, of course, we don't fall into this. We don't have any ridiculous gold-covered idols like Ashura Mazda. I don't have a place in my house where I have one nailed down. I don't go off to battle with an empty chariot with me so that he can come along and bless me. Maybe you're a football fan, though, and you have a really great chief's shrine somewhere in your house. I hope it doesn't amount to wind and confusion today for you. This is the reality. We can let ourselves off the hook in this conversation because we go, of course, we're not silly backwater people like these folks. We don't build idols and tell ourselves that it's real. No, you're right. We build entire societies around these ideas. We build economic systems and political systems and family systems and neighborhood systems all around these ideas. We can get control over a crazy world if we just master that world through science and technology. We can get a control over the unknown tomorrow if we can just build an economic system powerful enough and strong enough that cannot be moved, cannot be shaken. That's what we really need. If we could just get the right person in the White House, the right people in power, if we just had the right military might that would keep all of our dangers at bay, if we could just build a big enough fence around our house, if we could have just the right community, maybe a gated one, we could keep everyone at bay. These are the idols that we are invited to give our lives to. These are good things. These are good gifts. The king of Persia, Cyrus, brought a good gift to the Israelites. In fact, God says, I called him in righteousness to do what I wanted him to do. And make no mistake, our political systems and our economic systems and our, the way we organize our lives can bring great blessing to us. The problem is we get confused about what they're there for and we begin to give our entire lives to them and trust them to be the ones that will make sense of the chaos of life. There's a quote I came across that says this, Thus it is that we always pay dearly for chasing after what is cheap. These things, 
are nothing. These idols bring nothing but wind and confusion. When we decide that the ultimate outcome and power for our lives, the thing that will dictate what makes tomorrow right and what makes sense of yesterday are things like our family and our marriage and our neighborhood and our career and our health, we will find out very quickly how false these things are, how ephemeral these things are. One of my most heard quotes whenever I talk to young families who are having babies, especially when they're for the first time, and I say, are you hoping for a boy or a girl? Can anybody guess what they say back? As long as it's healthy. That tells me, right. that's a completely normal thing to say. If you've said it, no sweat. Everyone says it. It's completely normal, but it shows us, I'll tell you what really matters, as long as health is there. That's the thing that matters. As long as I have a job that brings me meaning, that's what really matters. As long as I can have a retirement that will keep me from being nervous, that's the thing that really matters. As long as my neighbors agree with me about the things that really matter in life, that's what really matters. As long as the right party controls the White House, that's what really matters. Those are the things that will ask you to pay everything and you will realize someday when they fail you how cheap they are. The reality is when we are stuck in the middle of today, it is hard to get perspective on how thin, ephemeral, and windy these things seem. You're living in 20, the 21st century in America, and somebody says, well, the American empire is going to fall just like every other empire ha ever has. And it's like, oh my gosh, what are you saying? That's impossible. After all, let me tell you about our idols. We're the biggest economic power, the biggest military power, the biggest social power. The, we have everything. What could possibly topple us? Let me tell you, every society that has ever existed in the history of earth said the same thing. Babylon said it. Persia said it. The Greeks who threw them, overthrew them said it. The Romans said it. Everyone has said it. The British Empire in the 19th century, it will never fall. The sun will never set. It's just not true. And we can believe it when we get sucked in and it will ask us, those false beliefs will ask us to give everything in trust and worship to those idols. And God is saying, where are they now? Speak up. Show me something impressive. Do something good, bad. Because if we see it, we'll all be scared. Nothing, nothing. Israel had begun to believe that Cyrus was the Messiah that had long been promised. This was part of their complaint. If Cyrus is the Messiah, how come everything is so bad still? And God says, you got it wrong. When he starts chapter 42, he changes the subject and he begins to describe who the servant is that he's really going to send. And here's what he says. Here is my servant whom I'm uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on the earth. And in his teaching, the islands, the furthest nations, will put their hope. He says, you've been mistaken if you think Cyrus is the one I'm sending. Because Cyrus fits the mold of every other one you ever put your trust in. If you were here for our Three Kings series where we looked at Saul and David and Solomon, we see the same trap. 
What Israel wants is a king who's loud, who yells in the streets, who talks down the bully, who puts people in their place, who wields his sword and defends the nation. That's what they want. And God says, might I remind you that my servant looks way different than that. In fact, this is what I've called you to be, Israel, and you're terrible at it. And you continue to be terrible at it. And here we are in court as you're accusing me of failing you. Let me remind you of who I'm looking for. He's going to be gentle. He's going to be kind. He's going to speak quietly. Because when you have real power, you don't have to bluster. That's the reality of the king that we're looking for. There's, a, there's an author that I've, um, I'm actually reading his newest book that I have a quote from right here right now. It's a novel that is barely worth the pages it's printed on. But sometimes you get, when you read a lot of theological stuff, sometimes you got to read fun stuff. He became famous by writing uh, his first book uh, was kind of a fan fiction kind of book that he wrote, and it was called Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter. Yeah. Uh, his second book was called Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. And that be kind of became his niche. He would take these kind of historical contexts and then he would put a twist on it that was kind of a modern thing. His, current, the, his latest book is a book that I'm reading uh, called Unholy Night. And it takes the idea of the uh, three wise men from the gospel account and he essentially mixes it with Ocean's Eleven. They are planning a giant heist and they get involved in the whole story in the Gospels. But there's a line from that book that I think is really great, and it, it made me, I thought of it immediately when I was reading this text, and here's what it says. The wise men come to King Herod in the story, and they say, the prophecy is clear, your highness. The Messiah shall topple all the kingdoms of the world, even yours. When I read that, and I started thinking about this text, I realized that this is the real challenge for us in the church. This is the real challenge for you today. This is the real challenge for me today. Because the prophecy is clear, the Messiah shall topple all the kingdoms of the world, even yours. And you might say, well, what kingdom do I oversee? What life do I rule? The last time I, I taught, I, I talked about this idea that we all have a kingdom that we have rule over, even if it's only a small corner of our own hearts. But most of you have some responsibility in your family or in your neighborhood or with your children or in your career. That is your kingdom, the place that you've been given rule and dominion. But the reality is this, the prophecy is clear. The Messiah shall topple all the kingdoms of the world, even yours. What do we do with that reality? How do we live as if it's true that the kingdom that I have, I can do everything I want to hold on tight to it, to hammer out some idols, to put them in the right places, to make sure I honor the right things, to make sure I do everything right. The reality is it doesn't matter because at the end of the day, your kingdom will topple. So you can hold on to it through teeth and spit and grit and try to keep it. Or you can live as if this is actually true and live for the king today. And that's the call that Isaiah has to his people. Here's what he says. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and I will make you to be a covenant for the people, a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. God has a mission for his people. 
Your kingdom can be in submission to his kingdom. The Messiah can be your king because God has you by the hand and he's asking you to participate in his mission to bring light to the Gentiles, to the world, to open the eyes of the blind, to bring justice and freedom through the gospel wherever we go. That's the call. And lest we start to get haughty, and lest we think, I'm glad I'm one of those people and not those who are in captivity. I'm glad I'm one of those people and not the blind. I'm glad I'm one of those people and not the deaf. He continues, hear you, O deaf. Look, you blind, and see who is blind but my servant. And who's deaf like the messenger I send? Who is blind like the one in covenant like with me? Blind like the servant of the Lord. He says, you were not chosen because you are not like everyone else. You're chosen because I chose you. I know that seems silly, but the reality is the, significant, the significance of being God, God's people called to his mission is not because we're not blind, it's not because we weren't captive, it's not because we don't listen, it's because he decided to call you in grace and kindness. If you follow King Jesus, this is the reality. You've been just as blind, you've been just as deaf, you've been just as captive, but you've been called out of it by him and sent on a mission to bring that good news to the rest of the world. But don't forget, you were still blind, you were still deaf, and you were still captive until he showed up. That's the reality. That's who we are. And this is what he says, the challenge that as we're beginning to wrap up here, I think is really important for us. He says, You have seen many things and you pay no attention. Your ears are open, but you do not listen. You have a lot of accusations for them. You say, look how blind they are. Look how deaf they are. If they would just see what I see, everything would be straight. Everything would be right. Everything would be the way it's supposed to be. The reality is he has an even more heavy condemnation for us because he says, you have been able to see and you've ignored it. You've been able to hear and you don't listen. So what do we do? Harper Lee, who wrote the book uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, says people generally see what they look for and hear what they listen for. This is what God is describing. I've been there. I've been moving. I've been faithful. I've been speaking. I've been nearby but were you looking for me? Were you listening for me? In fact, his final challenge to the people is, which of you will listen to this or to pay close attention in the time to come? Which of you? It's the beauty of God's message to his people is that we are his people and his message is for us too. And I think he's asking us the exact same question. Which of you will listen and which of you will pay attention in the time to come? That's my encouragement for us as we wrap up today. The call of God's people is not to go and fight the holy wars on his behalf. The call of God's people is not to make sense of a senseless world. The call of God's people is not to condemn everybody who's getting it wrong. The call of God's people is to lean in, to listen to him, and to pay attention to what he's already doing in the world to the work that he's already orchestrating beyond time and space, across generations, across empires, across leaders, and getting to work. And he's asking you to engage. Will you lean in? Will you listen? Will you pay attention? And I'm just here to tell you that one of the techniques of the idols of the world is to be loud and to shout in the streets. 
And I don't know if you remember what he said about his servant. He said he does not raise his voice. He does not cry out in the streets. He confidently speaks quietly, and he's asking his people to lean in and listen. And that's the invite for us today. Will you listen? Will you pay attention to what God is doing? Will we participate in his mission? Will we be a light to the Gentiles and be humble about it because he's freed us from our own slavery? Let's pray that God would help us to do that today. God, we come before you and we thank you for this long book of Isaiah and the prophecies and the confrontation and the kindness that is found within it. God, we thank you for your loving description of the servant king who is to come. We are so thankful that we know his name is Jesus. God, we're thankful that you have delivered us who have put our faith in him from our blindness and our deafness and our captivity to sin. God, help us to live as if it is true. Help us to embody it. Help us to lean in, to listen to your voice and to pay attention to what you're doing. It's what you've called us to be is your people. God, thank you for the time to be together, to focus on your word and to be transformed. We pray that your spirit meets us here this morning as we continue in our worship service. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.